a man ought to do well with such a people around him as I have. My dear friend and deacon, Mr. William Oney, once said, Our minister has hitherto led us forward, and we have followed heartily. Everything has been a success. Do you not believe in his leadership? The people cried, Yes. Then said my dear friend, If our pastor has brought us up to a ditch which looks as if it could not be passed, let us fill it up with our bodies and carry him across. This was grand talk. The ditch was filled. Nay, it seemed to fill itself up at once. If you have a true comrade, your strength is more than doubled. What a blessing is a good wife. You women who would not be in your right place if you begin to preach in the streets, you can make your husbands happy and comfortable when they come home, and that will make them preach all the better. Some of you can even help in another way if you are prudent and gentle. You can tenderly hint that your spouse was a little out of line in certain small matters, and he may take your hint and put himself right. A good brother once asked me to give him some instruction, and he pleaded thus, The only instructor I have had was my wife, who had a better schooling than fell to my lot. I used to say, we was, and us did it, and she quietly hinted that people might laugh at me if I did not attend to grammar. His wife thus became to him a professor of, of English language, and was worth her weight in gold to him, and he knew it. You who have such helpers ought to thank God daily for them. Next to this, it is a very great assistance to join in brotherly league with some warm-hearted Christian who knows more than we do and will benefit us by prudent hints. God may bless us for the sake of others when he might not bless us for our own. You have heard, I dare say, the monkish story of the man who had preached and had won many souls to Christ and congratulated himself upon it. One night it was revealed to him that he should have none of the honor of it at the last great day. And he asked the angel in his dream who then would have the credit of it. And the angel replied, That deaf old man who sits on the pulpit stairs and prays for you was the means of the blessing. Let us be thankful for that deaf man or that old woman or those poor praying friends who bring down the blessing upon us by their intercessions. The Spirit of God will bless two when he might not bless one. Abraham alone did not get one of the five cities saved, although his prayer was like a ton weight in the scale. But yonder was his nephew Lot, who was about the poorest Lot that could be found. He had not more than half an ounce of prayer in him, but that tiny fragment turned the scale, and Zoar was preserved. Add then your own half ounce to the mightier weight of the pleadings of eminent saints, for they may need it. Dear brother open-air preachers, I am not trying to instruct you. Some of you could far better instruct me. And yet I do not know, for I suspect I must be getting rather old from what I hear. A woman at the beginning of this year 1887, was trying to get something out of me, and she said, I remember hearing your dear voice 
more than 40 years ago. I said, heard my voice 40 years ago. Where was that? She said, you were preaching at the bottom of Pettenville Hill, near where Mr. Sade's chapel is. Well, I said, was it not more than 40 years ago? Yes, she said, it might be 50. Oh, I said, I suppose I was quite young then. Oh, yes, she said, you were such a dear young man. That, of course, was a needless assurance, but I do not think she was quite so sure of my dearness when I told her that I never preached at the bottom of Pentontonville, in that fifty years ago I was only three years old, and I thought it shameful for her to suppose that I should give her money for telling falsehoods. However, I shall presume upon the woman's statement tonight and suppose myself to be that venerable person she described me as being, and I shall make bold to say to you, dear brethren, if we are going to win souls, we must go in for downright labor and hard work. And first we must work at our preaching. You are not getting distrustful of the use of preaching, are you? No. I hope you do not weary of it, though you certainly sometimes must weary in it. Go on with your preaching. Cobbler, stick to your last. Preacher, stick to your preaching. In the great day when the muster roll shall be read of all those who are converted through fine music and church decoration and religious exhibitions and entertainments, they will amount to the tenth part of nothing. But it will always please God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Keep to your preaching, and if you do anything beside, do not let it throw your preaching into the background. In the first place, preach and in the second place, preach, and in the third place, preach. Believe in preaching the love of Christ, believe in preaching the atoning sacrifice, believe in preaching the new birth, believe in preaching the whole counsel of God. The old hammer of the gospel will still break the rock in pieces. The ancient fire of Pentecost will still burn among the multitude. Try nothing new, but go on with preaching and if we all preach with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, the results of preaching will astound us. Why, there is no end after all to the power of the tongue. Look at the power of a bad tongue, what great mischief it can do. And shall not God put more power into a good tongue, if we will but use it aright? Look at the power of fire. A single spark might give a city to the flames. Even so, the Spirit of God being with us, we need not calculate how much or what we can do. There is no calculating the potentialities of divine truth spoken with the enthusiasm which is born of the Spirit of God. Have great hope yet, brothers, have great hope yet, despite yon shameless midnight streets, despite yon flaming gin palaces at the corner of every street, despite the wickedness of the rich, despite the ignorance of the poor. Go on, go on, go on, in God's name, go on. For if the preaching of the gospel does not save men, nothing will. If the Lord's own way of mercy fails, then hang the skies in mourning, and blot out the sun in everlasting midnight, for there remaineth nothing before our race but the blackness of darkness. 
Salvation by the sacrifice of Jesus is the ultimatum of God. Rejoice that it cannot fail. Let us believe without reserve and then go straight ahead with the preaching of the word. Two-hearted open-air preachers will be sure to join with their preaching very much earnest private talk. What numbers of persons have been converted in this tabernacle by the personal conversation of certain brothers here whom I will not further indicate? They are all about this place while I am preaching. I recollect that a brother was speaking to me one Monday night and suddenly he vanished before he finished the sentence which he was whispering. I never quite knew what he was going to say, but I speedily saw him in the left-hand gallery, sitting in the pew with a lady unknown to me. After the service, I said to him, Where did you go? And he said, A gleam of sunlight came in at the window and made me see a face which looked so sad that I hurried upstairs and took my seat in the pew close to the woman of a sorrowful countenance. Did you cheer her? Oh, yes. She received the Lord Jesus very readily, and just as she did so, I noticed another eager face, and I asked her to wait in the pew till after the service, and I went after the other young man. He prayed with both of these, and would not be satisfied until they had given their hearts to the Lord. That is the way to be on the alert. We need a body of sharpshooters to pick out their men one by one. When we fire great guns from the pulpit, execution is done but many are missed we want loving spirits to go round and deal with individual cases in the singular by pointed personal warnings and encouragements every open air preacher should not only address the hundreds but he should be ready to pounce upon the ones and he should have others with him who have the same happy art how much more good would come of preaching in the streets if every open air preacher were accompanied by a batch of persons who would drive his nails home for him by personal conversation. Last Sunday night my dear brother told us a little story which I shall never forget. He was at Croydon Hospital one night as one of those appointed to visit it. All the porters had gone home and it was time to shut up for the night. He was the only person in the hospital with the exception of the physician when a boy came running in saying that there was a railway accident and someone must go round to the station with a stretcher. The doctor said to my brother, Will you take one end of the stretcher if I take the other? Oh yes, was the cheerful reply. And so away went the doctor and the pastor with the stretcher. They brought a sick man back with them. My brother said, I went often to the hospital during the next week or two because I felt so much interest in the man whom I had helped to carry. I believe he will always take an interest in that man because he once felt the weight of him. When you know how to carry a man on your heart and have felt the burden of his case, you will have his name engraven upon your soul. So you that privately talk to people, you are feeling the weight of souls. And I believe that this is what many regular preachers need to know more of and then they will preach better. When preaching and private talk are not available, you have a tract ready, and this is often an effectual method. Some tracts would not convert a beetle. There is not enough in them to interest a fly. Get good striking tracts, or none at all. 
but a telling, touching gospel tract may often be the seed of eternal life. Therefore, do not go out without your tracts. I suppose, beside giving a tract, if you can, you can try and find out where a person lives who frequently hears you, that you may give him a call. What a fine thing is a visit from an open-air preacher. Why, says the woman, there is that man come to see you. Bill, that gentleman who preaches at the corner of the street, shall I tell him to come in? Oh, yes, is the reply. I have heard him many times. He is a good fellow. Visit as much as you can, for it will be of use to yourselves as well as to the people. What power there is also in a letter to an individual. Some people still have a kind of superstitious reverence for a letter, and when they get an earnest epistle from one of you, reverend gentlemen, they think a great deal of it. And who knows? A note by post may hit the man your sermon missed. Young people who are not able to preach might do much good if they would write letters to their young friends about their souls. They could speak very plainly with their pens, though they might be different in speaking with their tongues. Let us save men by all means under heaven. Let us prevent men going down to hell. We are not half as earnest as we ought to be. Do you remember the young man who, when he was dying, said to his brother, My brother, how could you have been so indifferent to my soul as you have been? He answered, I have not been indifferent to your soul, for I have frequently spoken to you about it. Oh yes, he said, you spoke, but somehow I think if you had remembered that I was going down to hell, you would have been more earnest with me. You would have wept over me, and as my brother, you would not have allowed me to be lost. Let no one say this of you. But I hear it observed that most fellows, when they grow earnest, do such odd things and say such strange things. Let them say strange things and let them do strange things if they come out of genuine earnestness. We do not want pranks and performances which are the mere sham of earnestness, but real white heat earnestness is the want of the times. And where you see that, it is a pity to be too critical. You must let a great storm rage in its own way. You must let a living heart speak as it can. If you are zealous and yet cannot speak, your earnestness will invent its own method of working out its purpose. As Hannibal is said to have melted the rocks with vinegar, so earnestness will one way or another dissolve the rocky hearts of men. May the Spirit of God rest upon you, one and all, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Chapter 9, page 64 The Cost of Being a Soul Winner I want to say a word to you who are trying to bring souls to Jesus. You long and pray to be useful. Do you know what this involves? Are you sure that you do? Prepare yourselves then to see and suffer many things with which you would rather be unacquainted Experiences which would be unnecessary to you personally will become your portion if the Lord uses you for the salvation of others. An ordinary person may rest in his bed all night, but a surgeon will be called up at all hours. A farming man may take his ease 
at his fireside, but if he becomes a shepherd, he must be out among the lambs and bear all weathers for them. Even so doth Paul say, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. For this cause we shall be made to undergo experiences which will surprise us. Some years ago I was the subject of fearful depression of spirit. Certain turbulent events had happened to me. I was also unwell, and my heart sank within me. Out of the depths I was forced to cry unto the Lord. Just before I went away to Milton for rest, I suffered greatly in body, but far more in soul, for my spirit was overwhelmed. Under this pressure I preached a sermon from the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I was as much qualified to preach from that text as ever I expected to be. Indeed, I hope that few of my brethren could have entered so deeply into those heartbreaking words. I felt to the full of my measure the horror of a soul forsaken of God. Now, that was not a desirable experience. I tremble at the bare idea of passing again through that eclipse of soul. I pray that I may never suffer in that fashion again unless the same result should hang upon it. That night, after the sermon, there came into the vestry a man who was as nearly insane as he could be to be out of an asylum. His eyes seemed ready to start from his head, and he said that he should utterly have despaired if he had not heard that discourse, which had made him feel that there was one man alive who understood his feeling and could describe his experience. I talked with him and tried to encourage him and asked him to come again on Monday night when I should have a little more time to talk with him. I saw the brother again and I told him that I thought he was a hopeful patient and I was glad that the word had been so suited to his case. Apparently he put aside the comfort which I presented for his acceptance and yet I had the consciousness upon me that the precious truth which he had heard was at work upon his mind, and that the storm of his soul would soon subside into a deep calm. Now hear the sequel. Last night, of all times in the year, when, strange to say, I was preaching from the words, The Almighty hath vexed my soul, after the service in walked the self-same brother who had called on me five years before. This time he looked as different as noonday from midnight, or as life from death. I said to him, I am glad to see you, for I have often thought about you and wondered whether you were brought into perfect peace. I told you that I went to Mentone, and my patient also went into the country, so that we had not met for five years. To my inquiries, this brother replied, Yes, you said I was a hopeful patient, and I am sure you will be glad to know that I have walked in the sunlight from that day till now. Everything is changed and altered with me. Dear friends, as soon as I saw my poor despairing patient the first time, I blessed God that my fearful experience had prepared me to sympathize with him and guide him. But last night when I saw him perfectly restored, my heart overflowed with gratitude to God for my former sorrowful feelings. I would go into the deeps a hundred times to cheer a downcast spirit. It is good 
for me to have been afflicted that I might know how to speak a word in season to one that is weary. Suppose that by some painful operation you could have your right arm made a little longer. I do not suppose you would care to undergo the operation. But if you foresaw that by undergoing the pain you would be enabled to reach and save drowning men who else would sink before your eyes, I think you will utterly bear the agony and pay a heavy fee to the surgeon to be thus qualified for the rescue of your fellows. Reckon then that to acquire so winning power you will have to go through fire and water, through doubt and despair, through mental torment and soul distress. It will not, of course, be the same with you all, nor perhaps with any two of you, but according to the work allotted you will be your preparation. You must go into the fire if you are to pull others out of it, and you will have to dive into the floods if you are to draw others out of the water. You cannot work a fire escape without feeling the scorch of the conflagration, nor man a lifeboat without being covered with the waves. If Joseph is to preserve his brethren alive, he must himself go down into Egypt. If Moses is to lead the people through the wilderness, he must first himself spend forty years there with his flock. Payson said truly, If anyone asks to be made a successful minister, he knows not what he asks, and it becomes him to consider whether he can drink deeply of Christ's bitter cup and be baptized with his baptism. I was led to think of this by the prayer which has just been offered by our esteemed brother, Mr. Livingston. He is, as you perceive, of the seed of Abraham, and he owed his conversion to a city missionary of his own nation. If that city missionary had not himself been a Jew, he would not have known the heart of the young stranger, nor have won his ear for the gospel message. Men are usually won to Christ by suitable instruments, and this suitability often lies in the power to sympathize. A key opens a door because it fits the wards of the lock. An earnest address touches the heart because it meets the state of that heart. You and I have to be made into all sorts of shapes to suit all forms of mind and heart. Just as Paul says, And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without the law, being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. These processes must be wrought out upon us also. Let us cheerfully bear whatever the Holy Spirit shall work within our spirits, that we may thus be the more largely blessed to our fellow men. Come, brethren, and lay your all on the altar. Give yourselves up, you workers, into the Lord's hand. You who have delicacy and refinement may have to be shocked into the power to benefit the coarse and ignorant. You who are wise and educated may have to be made fools of that you may win fools to Jesus. For fools need saving, 
and many of them will not be saved except by means which men of culture cannot admire. How finely some people go to work when the thing needed may not be daintiness, but energy. On the other hand, how violent some are when the desired thing is tact and gentleness, and not force. This is to be learned. We must be trained to it as dogs to follow game. Here is one form of experience. The brother is elegant. He wishes to speak earnestly, but he must be elaborate too. He has written out a nicely prepared address. His notes are carefully arranged. Alas, he has left the priceless document at home. What will he do? He is too gracious to give up. He will try to speak. He begins nicely and gets through firstly. Fair and softly, good sir. What comes next? See, he is gazing aloft for secondly. What should be said? What can be said? The good man flounders about, but he cannot swim. He struggles to land, and as he rises from the flood, you can hear him mentally saying, That's my last attempt. Yet it is not so. He speaks again. He gathers confidence. He grows into an impressive speaker. By such humiliations as these, the Lord prepares him to do his work efficiently. In our beginnings, we are too fine to be fit or too great to be good. We must serve an apprenticeship and thus learn our trade. A black lead pencil is of no use at all till it is cut. The fine cedar wood must be cut away and then the inward metal which marks and writes will have fair play. Brethren, the knife of affliction is sharp, but salutary. You cannot delight in it but faith may teach you to value it. Are you not willing to pass through every ordeal if by any means you can save some? If this be not your spirit, you had better keep to your farm and to your merchandise, for no man will ever win a soul who is not prepared to suffer everything within the compass of possibility for that soul's sake. A good deal may have to be suffered through fear, and yet that fear may assist in stirring the soul in putting it into fit posture for work. At least it may drive the heart to prayer, and that alone is a great part of the necessary preparation. A good man thus describes one of his early attempts at visiting, with the view of speaking to individuals upon their spiritual condition. I was thinking on the way to the residence of the party, how I would introduce the subject, and all that I would say and all the while I was trembling and agitated. Reaching the door, it seemed as if I should sink through the stones. My courage was gone, and lifting my hand to the knocker, it dropped at my side without touching it. I went partly down the steps from sheer fear. A moment's reflection set me again to the knocker, and I entered the house. The sentences I uttered and the prayer offered were very broken, but thankful very thankful I am that my fears and cowardice did not prevail. The ice was broken. That process of ice-breaking must be gone through, and its result is highly beneficial. O oh, poor souls, you that wish to find the Savior, Jesus has died for you, and now his people live for you. We cannot offer any atoning sacrifice for you. There is no need that we should 
but still you would gladly make sacrifices for your soul's sake. Did you not hear what our brother said just now in his prayer? We would do anything, be anything, give anything, and suffer anything if we might but bring you to Christ. I assure you that many of us feel even so. Will you not care for yourselves? Shall we be earnest about your souls, and will you trifle them away? Be wiser, I beseech you, and may infinite wisdom at once lead you to our dear Savior's feet. Amen. Chapter 10, page 67 The Soul Winner's Reward On my way to this meeting I observed upon the notice board of the police station a striking placard offering a large reward to anyone who can discover and bring to justice the perpetrators of a great crime. No doubt our legislators know that the hope of a huge reward is the only motive which will have power with the comrades of assassins. The common informer earns so much scorn and hate that few can be induced to stand in his place, even when piles of gold are offered. It is a poor business at best. It is far more pleasant to remember that there is a reward for bringing men to mercy, and that it is of a higher order than the premium for bringing men to justice. It is moreover much more within our reach, and that is a practical point worthy of our notice. We cannot all hunt down criminals, but we may all rescue the perishing. God be thanked that assassins and burglars are comparatively few, but sinners who need to be sought and saved swarm around us in every place. Here is scope for you all, and none need to think himself shut out from the rewards which love bestows on all who do her service. At the mention of the word reward, some will prick up their ears and mutter legality. Yet the reward we speak of is not of debt, but of grace, and it is enjoyed not with the proud conceit of merit, but with the grateful delight of humility. Other friends will whisper, Is not this a low and mercenary motive? We reply that it is a mercenary as the Spirit of Moses, who had respect unto the recompense of the reward. In this matter, all depends upon what the reward is, and if that happens to be the joy of doing good, the comfort of having glorified God, and the bliss of pleasing the Lord Jesus, then the aspiration to be allowed to endeavor to save our fellow men from going down into the pit is in itself a grace from the Lord. And if we did not succeed in it, yet the Lord would say of it, as he did of David's intent to build a temple, it was well that it was in thine heart. Even if the souls we seek should all perish in unbelief, if they all despise and reject and ridicule us, yet still it will be a divine work to have at least made the attempt. If there comes no rain out of the cloud, yet it has screened off the fierce heat of the sun. All is not lost even if the greater design be not accomplished. What if we only learn how to join the Savior in his tears and cry, How often would I have gathered you, but ye would not? It is sublimity itself to be allowed to stand on the same platform with Jesus and weep with him. We are the better for such sorrows if no others are. 
but thank God our labors are not in vain in the Lord. I believe that the most of you who have really tried in the power of the Holy Spirit by scriptural teaching and by prayer to bring others to Jesus have been successful. I may be speaking to a few who have not succeeded. If so, I would recommend them to look steadily over their motive, their spirit, their work, and their prayer, and then begin again. Perhaps they may get to work more wisely, more benevolently, more humbly, and more in the power of the Holy Spirit. They must act as farmers do who, after a poor harvest, plow again in hope. They ought not to be dispirited, but they ought to be aroused. We should be anxious to find out the reason of failure, if there be any, and we should be ready to learn from all our fellow laborers. But we must steadfastly set our faces, if by any means we may save some, resolving that whatever happens, we will leave no stone unturned to effect the salvation of those around us. How can we bear to go out of the world without sheaves to bear with us rejoicingly? I believe that the most of us who are now assembled to pray have been successful beyond our expectations. God has blessed us not beyond our desires, but yet beyond our hopes. I have often been surprised at the mercy of God to myself. Poor sermons of mine that I could cry over when I get home have read scores to the cross, and more wonderful still words that I have spoken in ordinary conversation, mere chance sentences, as men call them, have nevertheless been as winged arrows from God and have pierced men's hearts and laid them wounded at Jesus' feet. I have often lifted up my hands in astonishment and said, How can God bless such a feeble instrumentality? This is the feeling of most who addict themselves to the blessed craft of fishing for men, and the desire of such success furnishes as pure a motive as could move an angel's heart, as pure indeed as that which swayed the Savior when, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Doth Job serve God for naught? said Satan. If he could have answered the question in the affirmative, if it could have been proved that the perfect and upright man found no reward in his holy living, then Satan would have creveled at the justice of God and urged men to renounce a service so unprofitable. Verily, there is a reward to the righteous, and in the lofty pursuits of grace there are recompenses of infinite value. When we endeavor to lead men to God, we pursue a business far more profitable than the pearl fishers diving or the diamond hunters searching. No pursuit of mortal man is to be compared with that of soul winning. I know what I say when I bid you think of it as men think of entering the cabinet of the nation or occupying a throne. It is a royal business and they are true kings who follow it successfully. The harvest of godly service is not yet. We do with patience wait for it, but we have earnest of our wage, refreshing pledges of that which is laid up in heaven for us. Partly this reward lies in the work itself. Men go hunting and shooting for mere love of the sport, 
Surely, in an infinitely higher sphere, we may hunt for men's soul, for the pleasing indulgence of our benevolence. To some of us it would be an unendurable misery to see men sink to hell and to be making no effort for their salvation. It is a reward to us to have a vent for our inward fires. It is woe and weariness to us to be shut up from those sacred activities which aim at plucking firebrands from the fire. We are in deep sympathy with our fellows and feel that, in a measure, their sin is our sin, their peril our peril. If another lose the way, my feet also go astray. If another downward go, in my heart is also woe. It is therefore a relief to set forth the gospel, that we may save ourselves from that sympathetic misery which echoes in our hearts, the crash of soul ruin. Soul winning is a service which brings great benefit to the individual who consecrates himself to it. The man who has watched for a soul, prayed for it, laid his plans for it, spoken with much trembling and endeavored to make an impression, has been educating himself by the effort. Having been disappointed, he has cried to God more earnestly, has tried again, has looked up the promise to meet the case of the convicted one, has turned to that point of the divine character which seems most likely to encourage trembling faith. He has, in every step, been benefiting himself. When he has gone over the old, old story of the cross to the weeping penitent and has at last gripped the hand of the one who could say, I do believe, I will believe, that Jesus died for me, I say he has had a reward in the process through which his own mind has gone. It has reminded him of his own lost estate. It has shown him the struggles that the Spirit had in bringing him to repentance. It has reminded him of that precious moment when he first looked to Jesus. And it has strengthened him in his firm confidence that Christ will save men. When we see Jesus save another and see that marvelous transfiguration which passes over the face of the saved one, our own faith is greatly confirmed. Skeptics and modern thought men have little to do with converts. Those who labor for conversions believe in conversions. Those who behold the processes of regeneration see a miracle wrought and are certain that this is the finger of God. It is the most blessed exercise for a soul. It is the divinest ennobling of the heart to spend yourself in seeking to bring another to the dear Redeemer's feet. If it ended there, you might thank God that ever he called you to a service so comforting, so strengthening, so elevating, so confirming, as that of converting others from their evil ways. Another precious recompense is found in the gratitude and affection of those you bring to Christ. This is a choice boon, the blessedness of joying in another's joy, the bliss of hearing that you have led a soul to Jesus. Measure the sweetness of this recompense by the bitterness of its opposite. Men of God have brought many to Jesus, and all things have gone well in the church till declining years, or change of fashions have thrown the good man into the shade, and then the minister's own spiritual children have been eager to turn him out of doors. The unkindest cut of all has come from those who owed their souls to him.
his heart was broken while he had sighed. I could have borne it had not the persons that I brought to the Savior have turned against me. The pang is not unknown to me. I can never forget a certain household in which the Lord gave me the great joy to bring four employers and several persons engaged by them to Jesus' feet. Snatched from the utmost carelessness of worldliness, these who had previously known nothing of the grace of God were joyful confessors of the faith. After a while, they imbibed certain opinions differing from ours, and from that moment, some of them had nothing but hard words for me in my preaching. I had done my best to teach them all the truth I knew, and if they had found out more than I had discovered, they might at least have remembered where they learned the elements of the faith. It is years ago now, and I have never said as much as this before, but I feel the wound much. I only mention these sharp pricks to show how very sweet it is to have those about you whom you have brought to the Savior. A mother feels great delight in her children, for an intense love comes with natural relationships. But there is a still deeper love connected with spiritual kinship, a love which lasts through life and will continue in eternity. For even in heaven each servant of the Lord shall say, Here am I and the children whom thou hast given me. They neither marry nor are given in marriage in the city of our God, but fatherhood and brotherhood in Christ shall still survive. Those sweet and blessed bonds which grace has formed continue forever, and spiritual relationships are rather developed than dissolved by translation to the better land. If you are eager for real joy, such as you may think over and sleep upon, I am persuaded that no joy of growing wealthy no joy of increasing knowledge, no joy of influence over your fellow creatures, no joy of any other sort can ever be compared with the rapture of saving a soul from death in helping to restore our lost brethren to our great Father's house. Talk of ten thousand pounds reward. It is nothing at all. One might easily spend that amount, but one cannot exhaust the unutterable delights which come from the gratitude of souls converted from the error of their ways. But the richest reward lies in pleasing God and causing the Redeemer to see of the travail of his soul. That Jesus should have his reward is worthy of the Eternal Father. But it is marvelous that we should be employed by the Father to give to Christ the purchase of his agonies. This is a wonder of wonders. O oh, my soul, this is an honor too great for thee. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.